Dear listener, this is not the full film of Sword of the Stranger. This is a review of the English dub of the film. At time of release, Sword of the Stranger is available on Blu-ray from Funimation, as well as streaming through their subscription service. Please support the official release. Sincerely, the Dub Talk Podcast. Ho there, samurai. You carry your sword well, but you made the mistake of crossing my path. Surely you must be prepared for what comes next. I shall tell you the rules of battle, for what does a lawless ronin like yourself know of rules? Warning, the Dub Talk podcast contains language and content that may not be suitable for younger audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Please be aware this episode will contain spoilers for Sword of the Stranger. The opinions expressed are those of the individual participants and may not reflect the Dub Talk podcast as a whole. Now then, have at you! Hello, one and all, and welcome to another episode of Season 5 of Dub Talk Summer at the Movies. I am your host, Spaceman Hardy, and making his Summer at the Movies debut is none other than Nico Robin with Yowie Hands himself, Jackson. Hardy, how did you get into my house? Just because there's a hole in the wall and the dog let you in, what are you doing here? It's raining. We, d- we don't have any food. No strays. No strangers, either. Will you take this uh, shiny green gem thing? I've seen real jade. This is a fake. I will take it anyways. Anyways, uh, tonight we have a very special episode. We are covering a movie that's very near and dear to your heart, Jackson. Um, Tell us what we're watching tonight. Tonight we're watching Sword of the Stranger. Yeah, this was a movie I suggested for uh, the summer at the movies. And then I was volunteered to be on the episode. So here we are. Now, I recall this movie from its uh, reputation online of being a very well-animated action movie. And I just remember seeing it, uh, the DVD at a con one time, uh, probably shortly after Bondi went out of business and picked this up for $5. It was great. Mm-hmm. Uh, in case you didn't notice, this movie is uh, from Studio uh, Bones and director Masahiro Ando from 2007. It was recently, a few years ago, uh, picked back up by uh, Funimation and finally released on Blu-ray. Yeah, I ended up getting that uh, re-release as well. Did you go through the trouble with this, the Mandarin subtitles, which is a moderate PSA that we have about that release? Oh, yes. Um, I believe it was the original release did not have them. Yeah, the first print run uh, didn't have these uh, Mandarin subtitles that are kind of integral to the movie. Yeah, I think I was actually the one who kind of, I don't need to toot my own horn or anything, I kind of brought that up to uh, Funimation as a whistleblower and let them know, hey, these are missing, they're important. <laughs> so, but yeah, thankfully I got the corrected release, so it's, everything's all chill. Yeah, and I held on to my old uh, Bond DVDs, so that worked out fine for me as well. So anyway, uh, funny you should mention the Mandarin, because that's a good plot point that we're going to be talking about later, but first, let's talk about our plot summary for the movie. According to A&N's page, Hunted by the Mings from China, Young Kotaro and his dog meet a nameless samurai, aka Nanashi or No Name, who is constantly being haunted by dreams of the past which lead him to seal his sword. Among the means is a fearsome western fighter named... Uh, it's uh, Loa Lung. I've been practicing the Chinese this whole time. Right. He desires only to find a worthy opponent. When both groups clash with a Sengoku-era feudal lord, a proud general, and monks torn between faith and survival... The reason behind the Ming's pursuit tests the bond between Kotaro and Nanashi. And what you end up with is a fabulously animated movie with a ton of awesome choreated fight scenes and arguably the single greatest anime sword fight ever made. Oh, it's Itaka Nakamura at his best. Absolutely. Oh, yes. Absolutely. We talk about the uh, animation in this movie quite a lot, and it is bones at their A-game. There is so much excellent storyboarding in this that you rarely see anywhere else where there's a lot of situational awareness to the action scenes as well. Like, it's not just fight choreography against each other. It's them aware of the environment and using that stuff going on. There's rain, there's snow. There's a lot of, not just the action animation, there's a lot of great character animation going on. Like, it's bone showing off at this point. Like, water effects, horses... Uh, clothes and blankets. It's just excellent, beautiful stuff. Yeah, it's it's such a visual movie, and it has such an amazing score to it as well that the actual dub itself sort of takes a back seat, if I dare say so. 
Yeah. It's interesting because you have a lot of characters in this movie, but not a whole lot of speaking roles or ones that stand out. Yeah, a lot of this movie is told visually. You don't necessarily need to be concerned with the dialogue or following what's going on on that end to enjoy this film. Like I said, it's very action-focused and you want to have your eyes on the screen the whole time so you don't want to be looking down at the subtitles, but a lot of that stuff isn't happening when people are talking either, so your eyes aren't being drawn down anyway. And if I had to say the story is kind of... I admit, the first time I watched this movie, I had no idea what the actual story was. I'm just like, hey, this is pretty. Hey, this is cool. Um, oh. Then you go back and watch it and like, man, that's a lot of chicken blood. Yeah, it's a fairly straightforward like samurai flick slash buddy cop road trip. And then on a second watch, you can kind of pick up on more of the themes that they're throwing down. Kind of makes it a bit more complex, but it's a fairly straightforward affair. And as you say, a lot of chicken blood. Mm-hmm. A lot of human blood. A lot of horse blood. Oh, yes. This is a very graphic movie. And it does not make any aspersions about that. Within the first five minutes, we're getting limbs chopped off and swords in orifices. They're making their own orifices. That's what they're doing. Ah, there we go. Yeah, That first scene from Princess Mononoke, just extend that out to the full runtime. Right, right. But it's interesting seeing is how the dialogue in this movie sort of takes a backseat to the film because uh, we have to address the dub. In fact, that's what we're going to be talking about tonight. Yes, we do technically have to talk about the dub. That is traditional here. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, this one is a special case for you, Jackson, because this was one of the few dubs we've covered that was actually recorded in Canada at Ocean. Yeah, which is uh, a topic I've broached before that I kind of want to see more Canadian dubs covered on this show. It was a happy accident that this movie also happens to be awesome and I wanted to cover it anyway, so you will never know if that was my plan all along. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so as I mentioned, this was recorded at Ocean Studios. Uh, Was this their Vancouver branch or which one was this? I do believe this was the Vancouver branch. Like it's Ocean Productions, not like Blue Water, which would be the Alberta uh, branch. Yeah, and we don't have a listed writer this we do have a director the director is keith a goddard and we have an adaptation credit for kathleen westlake yeah there's also a translation credit but i think we can leave this to the adaptation credits Mm -hmm. let's see what other things what other things have those two done yes uh keith goddard has directed shows such as galaxy angel s uh gregory horror show if you can remember that i have no idea what that is he also did the Hunter Hunter OVAs. But not the uh, TV series from the 90s. The OVAs, specifically? Uh, he did, yeah, the first 25 episodes. Oh, okay. so that as well. Excellent. Yeah, and um, Kathleen Westlake did the adaptation for The Girl Who Leapt Through Time, uh, Ham Taro, and Inuyasha, which is a pretty big, pretty big get there. Jackson, you started us off. What was your general opinion of the direction and writing for this dub? Uh... To speak on the writing first, like this is a period piece. So we we end up with period appropriate dialogue most of the time. So it's very, my lord, allow me to, all all that kind of stuff. So it is staying very like formal and rigid most of the time. Uh, And we get a little bit of creative expression with uh, the child character without going into like slang. So I thought the uh, script was fairly well handled. As far as the directing goes, like, there does end up being a lot of uh, double casting in this cast, but I think they're fairly distinct enough. Like, we have several old men incidental characters, and they're distinct enough where you have one that's kind of senile, one that's kind of Master Roshi-like, and one that uh, has a bit more bite to them. I'll speak on the Chinese as well for a bit, because they have to mix that in as well. And when you have a second language like this in a dub, you have a couple of different options. Uh, and they've kind of elected for the cheaper option here of just leave in the uh, original dialogue and try to get voice matches for your English characters. And it works pretty well for the most part. Like, I'm not taken aback thinking that's a different character when they switch over to the different languages. Uh, It's just kind of a little disappointing that some of the bigger moments end up being in Mandarin when you kind of want to have that from the English actors. Like, how the movie as a whole handles the Mandarin dialogue is the Chinese characters speak in Mandarin to each other, so we hear that as English, and when they're speaking to anyone uh, Japanese, they're given the Mandarin dialogue. They've done that in other shows as well, 
most recently, I think they did that in Princess Principle, but it was the Japanese characters speaking in Japanese to each other and the English characters speaking in English to each other. Right, yeah, they did leave the original dialogue in for that show as well. And they did it for an old video game called Samurai Western, where the main character, if he's speaking to himself or someone else in Japanese, they'll have Japanese with subtitles. But if he's speaking to someone, because he's in the West, if he's speaking to someone English, then he has very broken, heavy accented English. Ah. It's an interesting, interesting approach that they take. Yeah, like I definitely want, have wanted the Chinese characters to be speaking in accented English for this. That wouldn't have been appropriate for them, like speaking to each other in their native language. Right. The other point I want to touch on with the Mandarin is they are pretty careful when they have the English uh, actors speaking Chinese names, like uh, Xi'an Mess and character names, all this stuff. It is fairly accurate to a uh, Chinese speaker. Yeah. Like Feng Wu instead of Feng Wu. Yeah, it's Feng Shui, but it is not written the way a English person intuits. You have all the uh, Xi'an Mess and spelled with X's and all this stuff. They're, they're not following over easy mistakes like that. Right. Personally, as far as the direction goes, I found it to be sort of, maybe it's because I'm not really familiar all that much with Canadian-based actors, but in general, I found the performances were fairly all a little over the top. Not to say they were all hammy, although in certain cases, yes, they were very much so. But they all had this sort of a little bit over the top, like they were trying to be a little bit, speaking of this and, you know, enunciating my performance sort of wise um yeah i don't really know what the word for that is it's just it's like a little bit over the top but you know it's done the the whole way through with everyone it's not like a single performance i think you're kind of describing like a theater play type of acting approach yeah they're over enunciating yeah and kind of playing to the back seats no i I hear that and it doesn't work to the film's detriment i don't think no, uh, I think that kind of falls into that category a lot, where I talk about this over-formality that the period kind of has. Right. So in general, I think the direction is is good. I definitely think that, like I said, the performance takes a backseat to the visuals and, and the music and the score. But overall, I don't think it's a bad production. And I do agree that adaptation, the writing, is very appropriate. Yeah, I will echo those opinions. On the music bit... There is a bit of a uh, leitmotif going through, like a main theme that we hear quite a bit. Uh, so it gets played in some of the bigger moments, and even when people are trying to act in that, they kind of get drowned out. Yeah. Well, it's a good theme. I mean, it's if you're going to get drowned out by anything, I mean, the Sword of the Stranger theme is one of my favorite anime scores ever. It's just got that recognizable uh, effect to it. It hasn't been on my playlist like other uh, movie themes have, but it's definitely memorable and swelling and gets the heart going. Yeah. All right. So we're agreed on direction and adaptation. Let's move to our first set of characters. Um, The movie basically has like only five main roles, honestly. So, but these two do play an important part. You see Showan and Zekai, they're a pair of priests who end up betraying Kotaro to the Chinese. Um, Shoan, you see at the very beginning, he's the one who does not want to sell out Kotaro. He's trying to save him. Zekai's entire thing is to be a pompous, arrogant jerk and get knocked the fuck out. As Shoan does come back later near the end and feels remorse and, and kind of, you know, offs himself, but, uh, but that's what you do when you're a betrayer. So playing these characters, playing Shoan, we have Hiro Kanagawa. That's not a mistake. He's an English actor. And playing Zekai, we have Richard Newman. Hiro Kanagawa, you've heard in shows such as Mobile Suit Gundam and Story of Kaku, And Richard Newman, you've heard him in shows such as Beast Wars, Car Captor Sakura, and he was actually the voice of Bear Hugger in the Wii release of Punch-Out! <laughs> so, as brief as, as these performances are, what did we think? Uh, I think uh, Zekai is pretty appropriate. Uh, we can knock him out pretty quick, <laughs> as it were. He's the old priest that cares more about money than he does like his religion or human lives. He's protecting his uh, status and temple over anything else. And he's just got this mean old man voice where it's just a little bit of uh, spittle. Well, that's kind of the quality he's got going on. Like, there's a nice action beat where uh, he's swinging a sword at uh, No Name and gets disarmed and knocked out in one swift motion. 
these are the kind of like action beats that you have to be watching for, or else you blink and miss them, which are really fun. Uh, Shoan is actually a bit more interesting because he's got the, like his big scene is mostly him begging for his life and trying to justify his actions. Like he tries to pull the I was just following orders defense to explain why he betrayed this eight-year-old kid. Uh, it's very effective, the acting in this scene where he just comes off very uh, pathetic but he fortunately does. He, he says a line about uh, wouldn't you do the same to No Name that kind of cuts him to the, the core and sets the uh, third act into motion. I like how uh, how during his his whole spiel, No Name just cuts his uh, his garment off and says, you're lower than a dog because he's referencing Toby Maru, who is literally about to go chase down Kotaro. I thought that was a nice touch in the dialogue. Yeah, that's an excellent touch, because that dog is the best dog. We will get to Toby Maru later, but um, yeah. I think you're going to be hearing this a lot from me tonight, is the word old man voice. Because there are a lot of old men in this show, or this movie. I have already started using old man voice. So. Old man voice. Yeah, Zekai doesn't really make much of an impression because he has, at most, like three or four lines. But he pulls it off very well being the, you know, arrogant jerk that's just out for his own skin. And for the few lines he's got, he's very, it works very well. He's very appropriate, the performance. And when he sort of cowers at the end, when not, she just cleans his clock, it's great. Uh, but uh, Hiro Kanagawa as Showon. When Shawan is just speaking normally and he's not cowering for his life, uh, he sounds kind of very uptight and, uh, you know, just sort of your typical monk, soft-spoken and just very followed by the rules. But then when you see him sort of break down, it's uh, you see this sort of whole other level of this pitiful, pathetic person who, despite his misgivings, he's trying to justify because he knows it's wrong, unlike Zekai. He's gone against Buddha's teachings. Right, right. He's betrayed his faith, and he's just trying to justify it. And in the, in the end, he just realizes, you know, you're right. I am lower than a dog, so I'm going to leash myself up on this tree. They have a big impact on the plot. They just don't have a lot of screen time, which is a thing you're going to find a, a lot about this movie and their characters. Yeah, we're glossing over several cast members that are kind of defined just by the weapon they carry. Yeah, the Ming warriors, there are some good performances there, but they only have like one or two lines at best. We don't even have any female characters to cover on this episode because both of the female characters, one is literally Itadori's wife. <laughs> she doesn't even have a name. We have uh, Revy from Black Lagoon in this cast, and she gets two lines total as two different characters. Right. This is a very machismo, manly, heavy episode. At least her character takes a lot of damage before she goes down, so. Yeah, th these characters do get body counts. Uh, don't misunderstand that. They just aren't talking a lot while they're slicing off heads. Right. They're all hopped up on this medical drug that makes them impervious to pain, so. Like, I think one guy gets tortured, and he just, like, sits there... Yeah, uh, Tusa gets hit with uh, red-hot irons and does not flinch. It is a very uh, disturbing action. But it does help. Uh, when your characters don't feel pain, you can put them through the meat grinder a lot harder before they go down. Except for the arrow girl. She takes one straight to the forehead and takes it, it out. 360 no-scope. Yeah. <laughs> Boom, headshot. Uh, speaking of headshots, let's go to our next characters. These are a bunch of twisted officials and politicians. We have Akaiki, who is the feudal lord of the land. He's taking money from the Chinese so that they could do their ritual, but then he finds out what they're up to and wants to hold them for ransom for even more. He's a greedy son of a bitch. We have Shogun Itadori, who is, I think he's the head of Akaiki's army or something? Yeah, he's one of his main generals of like three, and he's the last surviving one. Right, yeah, he's the feudal lord's right-hand man. He's in charge of his army. And then his right-hand man is Jirota Inui, and he is just sort of like, you know, he's just sort of there. He's infatuated with the princess, and it does not work out well for him. So, playing Akaiki, we have Paul Dobson. Playing Itadori, we have Brian Dobson. And playing Jirota is Alistair Abel. Paul Dobson, you've heard in shows such as Beast Machines. He was in Fatal Fury 2, The New Battle, as Wolfgang Krauser. And he was in the original Fatal Fury special as Billy King. Uh, I was going to mention Juggernaut from X-Men Evolution. Oh, yes. Yeah. Brian Dobson, 
He is in movies such as he was in Hideki Ide as in Death Note. He was in Mobile Suit Gundam, and he was in Mobile Suit Gundam Seed as Martin Gacosta. Ah, good old Gundam Seed. Oh yes, good old Gundam Seed. Let us never speak of it again. <laughs> Alistair Abel. He was in The Highlander: The Search for Vengeance movie as Colin McLeod. He was in Dot Hack Roots, and he was also in Galaxy Angel. So, uh, Jackson, what is your opinion of these three performances? Uh, I guess let's start with uh, Lord Akaike, who's just very atypical magistrate figure. Like, he is just in this for money, uh, and the performance is very kind of slimy in that way, where he's overconfident, revels a lot in his riches and booze and women that he has at his call. Yeah, like these characters are more important for getting the plot and exposition across to the audience because they're the ones trying to uncover what the Ming are doing. Uh, And for his trouble, he gets shot in the head by uh, Shogun Itadori. But he's very much just slimy head honcho type who gets abducted and put at the mercy of his underling and really has no leverage in that situation. So even if he's begging for his life, it's not going to go well for him. Uh, Shogun Itadori is just this very... He has a lot of ambition, and he doesn't necessarily care how he gets there. Like, he's always looking to climb that ladder somehow. A very arrogant individual. Like, if I were to describe his voice, it reminds me a lot of a villainous uh, Richard Epcar. I'm thinking, like, Ansem from Kingdom Hearts type, uh, just to bring that into this. Yeah, uh, very arrogant. Like, he picks a fight with the six-foot blonde-haired demon, thinking he has any shot at this, and gets soundly beaten. He's always trying to spin a situation in his favor. Like, oh, I lost that fight, but it's only because I didn't have my spear. Clearly, I would have won this anyways. It's just a flesh wound. He, he doesn't have any qualms about what he has to do to climb this ladder, who he has to kill, what evil deeds he has to do. And he just has this arrogance of like, I will shoot for the moon because my ambition says I have to shoot higher so I can reach higher. But you, Jirota, no, you don't aim too high because you'll never reach there. It's that very kind of like self-centered, like, the rules apply for me, but not for you guys beneath me. You guys live to serve me. And Jirota, like, the first impression you get is just kind of this milquetoast servant of his lord. But the second he gets, like, a taste for power, like, he moves up one step from this guy's student to the right hand of the new master. He's like, I want a reward for my allegiance. I want a prize. Give me the princess's hand. He very quickly becomes scummy in that way and is very quickly given a karmic punishment for uh, trying to spin that uh, situation in, in his favor. Yeah. No, I found it very funny, even the first time I watched it, like, Jirota's very thing, as soon as he says, hey, you know, I want the princess, is that he gets taken out immediately. It's like the very next scene, like it was nothing. I, I definitely did rewind the movie, it's just like, did that take him down? Yeah, no, he went down from just that one hit. Oh, sucks to be him. To his credit, he did take out the one uh, girl with the bow, so that was his one big accomplishment. Yeah, from the horseback riding. That, that is an impressive feat. And they do kind of set it up like there's an offhand line about his archery being better than his swordsmanship after he gets soundly beaten in dojo. And then he's riding on the back of a horse and gets off the headshot while this person with uh, the high ground advantage can't get him. So anyways, I'm going to be repeating this again uh, like I did. Uh, there's a lot of old man voices in this, specifically Paul Dobson as Akaike. He has this sort of just utter sleaze to him. In the few scenes that we get from him, you can totally buy that. He's like the equivalent of Don Corneo in the, um, in the Sengoku period. Yeah, sleaze is a good word. He's a big fat sleaze ball. Uh, ends up with an arrow to his head from his own guy. But um, Brian Dobson as Itadori is probably one of my favorite performances in this dub. Because he has this sort of arrogance and this sort of... Uh, high and mighty to him. And yeah, I definitely agree. He's sort of very Richard Epcar-ish because uh, he reminded me of a few Lupin characters like a mix of both Goemon and uh, Zenigata almost. Just in his face and his mannerisms and, and his attitude. Weird that this guy's the family man of the cast. Oh yeah, he's actually a, a very loving uh, husband and father despite his, you know, morally ambu- ambiguous, ambiguous ambitions. Say that five times fast. I practice all that Chinese. I can't do English anymore. <laughs> Me fail English? That's impossible. 
But anyways, no, he's probably one of my favorite roles in the movie because he has this whole fight scene where he's actually standing toe to toe with Lu Long and he's been stabbed in the both the leg and in the neck. And he's like, you think that's going to stop me? Come on, you'll never stop me. And then he gets shot through the heart. Oh, uh, that's great. Get punked. We don't care. Yeah, I liked his his performance. But yeah, poor, poor Jirota. Alistair only has a few lines to say, and uh, Jirota's kind of like milk toast, in my opinion. But um, I, I can't help but find that the moment that he actually pulls off an accomplishment, he has some sort of gusto to his voice. He gets axed immediately afterwards, like literally axed to the face. I mean, all in all, like I said, uh, the, the dub is going to take a backseat to the visuals and, uh, and music, but they were competent and well-cast performances and for these three. Yeah, like the main theme we see kind of in here is grass for power and how it does not work for any of these characters. So moving on from our Japanese antagonists to our Chinese conspirators, we have a whole group of Chinese characters but we're only going to focus on three because they have the most dialogue because the others only have a handful of lines. So we have Bai Luan. He's the oldest of the group and the general big bad of the movie, in all honesty. His goal is to create this medicine that will grant immortality and give it to the emperor. But later you find out he really just wants it for himself. He claims that he's doing it for the Emperor, but at the at the end of it all, he's really just doing it all for himself. And so he drags all of his cohorts on the belief that they're doing it for the Emperor, but he sort of dooms them all because he's just going to use it for himself. He is the most evil, rotten person in the movie, by far. Uh, then you have his subordinate, Feng Wu, who is sort of third in command. He's just following orders. His one goal is that Live with pride, is all he says. Is he wants to live his life with pride. So he's just following orders. And then we have this asshole, Lu Long. He is a six-foot-tall, blonde-haired, blue-eyed foreigner. He was rescued as an orphan from the Chinese, does not speak a very, very little amount of Japanese, and he's just a monster incarnate. He does not take the medicine to, to deaden pain. He just wants a good fight. That's all he's after. He will pick a fight with anyone, and he just wants to throw down. So much so that he doesn't even care about the whole medicine thing. He just wants a fight to the death to prove his superiority. Yeah, he's not here for the Emperor. He's not here for Bai Luan. He's not here for his subordinates. He's just here for himself. Picks fights with random vagabonds that just happen to be carrying swords. He ruined the saddle, damn it. <laughs> you put a hole in my saddle. That's mean. Put a hole in his hat, too. He got it off a dead guy. How much damage is he really doing? Oh, that's true. So anyways, playing these characters. By the wand, we have Ken Kramer. Feng Wu, we have Kyle Rideout. And, brace yourselves, playing Luo Long, we have the one and only Scott McNeil. Oh, I'm swooning. <laughs> uh, okay. Ken Kramer, you have heard in series such as Night at High Noon and The Wonder Gate, uh, The Humanoid, while wow, that goes back, and he was also in the Ocean dub for Ghost in the Shell Standalone Complex Individual 11. Kyle Rideout only has two roles to his name. It's this movie, and he was also in The Story of Sain Koku. He was also Vinny Terrio in Littlest Pet Shop. We forget that Canada does a lot of kids shows as well. Yeah, if you uh, go through the other casts for a lot of this, you'll see a lot of cartoons, a lot of forgettable Netflix shows, either CG or Flash. Basically, everyone's been in My Little Pony. And Scott McNeil, where do we even begin? The, the one I will call out is uh, Wolverine from X-Men Evolution. The one true Wolverine that's closest to my heart. I mean, up there with Steve Bloom and... Uh, Hugh, Hugh Laurie? Hugh Jackman. Yeah, I was about to say, Hugh, Hugh Laurie, you're taking... Oh, that's a, that's a different movie. It's like, House. I want that. Yes, yeah, Wolverine voiced by House. <laughs> or, no, the other way around. It's just so uh, House can have that regenerative power and can stop being an asshole, but still chooses to be an asshole. Right, right. Obviously, Scott McNeil, he was the first voice of Piccolo in the Canadian dub for Dragon Ball Z. Uh, he was the voice of Hohenheim Elric in the first uh, Full Metal Alchemist and the movie. He was Koga in Inuyasha. 
Uh, he's been he's been a one piece movie villain in uh, Shiki in Strong World. That's right, where he did a, that thick Jamaican accent. I, I got him to sign that Blu-ray. That was great. Did you get him to sign it, Baby Doll? I think I did. Yeah. He is also the principal in Ronma One Half, which he also did a very uh, semi uh, stereotypical <laughs> accent with that one as well. Uh, so, Jackson, uh, our Chinese fighters, what is your opinion of these performances? All right. We'll start uh, with Feng Wu here. I did briefly confuse this character for uh, Brad Swale. Uh, I thought that their uh, voice kind of sounded similar. Uh, they're not doing great acting work. Uh, a little bit stilted. Has a couple of lines to kind of get across what he's about, where he's got this loyalty to his master, Luolong, and loyalty to the emperor. Wants to live his life with pride, and that kind of comes across. There, there was that one bit where they cut to him looking out a window, and I'm just like, who's this female character? He has kind of just effeminate design. He's a pretty boy. Yeah. He, he does... Everyone can do a good job dying on screen, and he does actually get uh, some nice death throws like that, where he's got the sword sticking through his throat and blood coming out of his mouth, and that comes across very well, where he's just trying to do something in his last moments. Uh, Bai Luan is just this ancient uh, priest with a bit of bite to him, where he's barking orders all the time. He is not taking anyone's crap and anyone's sass or snapbacks. Other people try to be practical or try to cut corners and he's not having any of it. Like it has to be the appointed time, the appointed place. It doesn't matter how long it takes. If we are in this country for another year, we will do it. He's just kind of got this very set in his ways about him where it has to be this way. The emperor is at the top and then it's me and all of you other people are beneath me. I deserve greatness. Where Where is my reward at the end of this? And like the acting chops are great there where he's just barking authority at everyone and not taking anyone's shit there. Uh, Lulung, Scott McNeil, <laughs> this wild animal. Scott's doing this great, like, I would say he has a purr to his voice. Like, if a lion could purr, this is what it would sound like. Just this beautiful, like, gruff, wild animal that you cannot control. He's going along with the Ming Empire and their plans because it's convenient for him. He gets to travel the world, see other places, find other people to fight and kill, but he's just in it for himself, cannot be controlled, wants to fight strong opponents. His fighting style also kind of reflects this. It's very like acrobatic and just animalistic where he is running at you with everything he's got. He's the kind of cocky asshole that will do the uh, sword catch in his hands and pulls it off multiple times. Let me uh, let me start with Feng Wu. Like you said, I did sort of hear a bit of Brad Swale in his voice, but not to be insulting to Kyle Rideout, but it was sort of a lesser Brad Swale. And considering I'm, I'm already on the fence about Brad Swale anyways, that's not saying very much. I think his performance in the movie was probably the weakest overall. Uh, we'll get to Kotaro next, but in general, I think as far as an adult actor, I think his was the least believable because it sounded a bit like he was reading and not like he was acting but near the end he does get better as soon as he gets some some action scenes and of course his death throw is legendary but i mean it, it, just my opinion i think he was the weakest in the film uh ken kramer as by Luong gave me very strong uh aramaki vibes from ghost in the shell he sounded a lot like william frederick knight and that is a compliment because I think William Knight is an amazing actor as for old guys. Yeah, you could tell that Bailon as he gets angry and he he lets his ambition control him that uh, I think he puts out one of the stronger performances amongst the villains in the movie. Scott McNeil. Would it be criminal for me to say I think he overdid it a bit? Yes, how dare you? Scott McNeil can do no wrong. <laughs> But state your case. Yeah, no, I think I get what he was going for. He wanted this really deep, low, monstrous roar. This gravelly register. This frightening aura. This animalistic voice. And I think it doesn't always fit the look of the character. Like, yes, uh, Lil Long is very big and imposing and scary looking, but I think he went a little bit too deep, if you catch my drift. I like it a lot, but I think he should have gone a little about one octave higher and not had this deep Liam Neeson voice, as I call it. I can kind of follow you. Like, 
Uh, Lo Long, the character, kind of has those downcast eyes and is speaking on very, like, practical uh, logistics a lot of the time. It's a bit of that uh, reading the phone book kind of vibe to him. I I think I'm a bit more used to Scott McNeil doing, like, the teacher thing in X-Men, for example, where this kind of voice is not out out of the norm, perhaps. I think what was the the dub's detriment is that most of Lua Long's action scenes are in Mandarin. Uh, So Scott really doesn't get to express, you know, do the loud gravelly growls and loud shout noises and stuff uh, like he normally would be able to. Because he's well known for that. Yeah, I'll definitely agree with that, where it's kind of a missed opportunity. Like Lua Long, uh, not to spoil the movie, but to spoil the movie, uh, (laughs) also has his death throes and all of those are in Mandarin. The Chinese actor is doing a fine job of it, but I would have liked to have Scott McNeil get to voice those bits. So here's an interesting thing. The one uh, line that Lua Long does get to speak in Japanese in the film uh, is when he's offering the medicine to No Name. In the Japanese, it was very broken and slurred Japanese. But in the dub, he speaks it very cleanly. Yeah, I definitely remember that scene and was unsure what they were getting at there. Uh, Whether it was them speaking the same language or him just being understood while talking in Mandarin at them. But I like it a lot. I just had some issues with it. I mean, it could have been so much more, but it's still very enjoyable. All right. Now we can actually talk about things because we're getting to our main trio. And roughly, I want to say 75% of the dialogue is shared between these actors. If they're not talking, there's no dialogue in the movie at the time, basically. Basically, yeah. And so we have the titular stranger himself, no name, a.k.a. Nanashi. He is a former uh, samurai for several different lords. Every lord he served gave him a different name, and he's actually just like Lil Long, he is a foreigner himself, only he is red-haired. He dyes his hair to blend in with Japanese society. It's probably a bit implied that he's of mixed race if his complexion isn't causing him grief, and it's just his hair color. Yes, that's, and um, the reason he has sworn to seal his sword is because many years ago he was ordered to execute two children against his will and ever since he has sealed his sword and tried his best to live a life of peace as a no-name vagabond don't you just love stories of uh pacifist samurai that have sworn never to draw their sword it's a great trope uh our second main character is a young boy named kotaro he is supposedly the chosen one the chinese are seeking so that they could spill his blood in a ritual to create the xion medicine uh, to supposedly give the emperor eternal life. Uh, he's just trying to survive, and um, he offers the no-name samurai a small piece of jade that may or may not be counterfeit just to ensure his protection and to uh, watch over him and get him to the temple on time, where it turns out he gets betrayed anyways. And then we have the single star of the show. We have best the little Shibu Inu, little Shibu Inu, Toby Maru, who is Kotaro's companion and protector, knows no fear. Has a kill count. He has a body count. He literally has a body count. Well, you take into consideration that Shibu Ino, despite their size, are trained to fight bears. No, he's, he ain't going to take no shit. But he's just the goodest boy, and we love him. So, playing these characters, playing the no-name samurai, we have Michael Adam Thwaite. Playing Kotaro, we have Aiden Drummond. And playing Toby Maru, we have a bunch of various dog noises. It's not a person playing this, but we can't not talk about Toby Maru. Right. I, I don't know what uh, image I'm going to put here. Probably like a robot dog. I will figure that out in post. <laughs> put just like a random Shibu. Oh, oh put the meme dog. Oh, uh, don't The Shibu Inu meme dog. Yeah. The... Yes. Okay. Doggy uh... coin. <laughs> Michael Adam Thwaite, you've heard in roles such as... Anthony Rester in Death Note, he was Kazunao Yamada in Kiesniver, and he was Ken in LBX. Aiden Drummond was a child actor at this time. Uh, he's been in roles such as B. Demon Fireblast and Dimashita Powerpuff Girl Z. And yeah, you have a bunch of various dog noises for Toby Maru. 
So Jackson, what did we think about our main duo slash trio? Let's start with uh, Aiden Drummond, I think. So it won't surprise you to hear that this is Brian Drummond's kid. And like with child actors, he's going to be one of the weaker parts of the dub. I'm not going to call this nepotism because there are other people doing the casting directing on this show. Uh, and he's gone on to do more work at the time after this. Like I'm looking at his file photo in ANN and he's he's grown up into a shitty mustache. <laughs> Yeah, Kodoro struggles a little bit, especially when he's trying to be angrier and lay down the law. He's putting more force behind his voice, and that's kind of showing his inexperience where he's trying to be angry and get his way and intimidating, and it's not quite coming across. He does a bit better when he's sassing No Name and being a bit more cheerful, where he can get that stuff across. Like I'm saying, a lot of the um, actual uh, characterization here is happening visually, where he'll be trying to convince uh, No Name of something and bartering him with his uh, jade and his hands are shaking. So that's kind of what convinces him more than what uh, is coming out of Kotaro's mouth. It's kind of implied that he's maybe someone of privilege because he knows how to read and write. And he, and he also speaks Chinese. Yeah, he speaks Chinese. He's traveled to China and traveled back to Japan to escape Ming. That's weird. And they never, they leave that up to your imagination. We talk about his short temper and that's kind of not getting him anywhere like no name uh is able to quite quickly shoot down any of his complaints by just kind of explaining why he needs to do these chores and he has an answer for everything kodro is just kind of very suspicious and cautious around everyone because people are after him and he's trying to stay alive and the one thing he cares about is this dog uh this dog though <laughs> has a kill count runs interference for uh kodro so he can get his uh, thieving on is the person that lets uh, No Name stick around for a bit, takes a bullet for her, No Name, and by bullet I mean poisoned knife, and that kind of keeps the trio together for the rest of the movie until they can get over themselves and have a bonding moment. And it's ultimately uh, the dog that saves Kotaro from being killed ritualistically at the top of that tower because he gets to the kid first. And then we have our stranger that. Uh, Look what the dog dragged in. His no-name stranger, Michael Adam Wife. He makes a strong impression right away. He's got this casual just, uh, don't worry, I'm not here to hurt you. Immediately, it was like making himself at home of, oh, sounds like Raven Fish tonight. And he's just got this very charm and smarminess to him when he's talking to this kid. Like I said, it's very practical and kind of cold where he can get his way and shut this kid up. So we have this very classical uh, pacifist samurai character who has a bit more going on. Like his main personality trait is he's a horse girl. He loves this horse that he picks up from the Chinese army. He's like, I want this one. It's the best one. We have to put a bit more work into this, but trust me, this is the good horse. Oh, look, look at how he's been castrated. That's how they keep him docile. This and more uh, fun facts about castration in the 1600s in this movie. Oh, fun. And on that note, he also uh, secretes black ooze from his stinky nuts <laughs> to make his hair dye. Lovely. To hide his identity, run from his past. Like I alluded to earlier, this uh, wouldn't you do the same uh, line from Monk Shuan kind of cuts into the cork as that is how he acted in the past was he went against his morals. This is kind of what sets him on the path of never again. So it's very significant when he finally does draw his sword and he's got this charm on his sword where it's uh, to prevent him from pulling it out uh, until he really means it. And when he really means it, he's tearing through it with his hands and his teeth, ripping it out and gets a uh, one sword slash kill immediately. You know, considering the whole movie, he goes without using his sword. When he finally does pull it, he only uses it against three people. Yeah, he uh, slashes one guy down, throws it against another guy, and then we presume that he loses that sword. And it's not until the big show-off with uh, Lua Lung that they're actually uh, facing off with their weapons. And it gets destroyed by the end of that fight, where it's broken in half. One thing to notice is that they stab each other with each other's swords. Yeah. notice. Yeah. Like I was saying before, they, they throw everything at each other in that uh, final fight. Yeah, those swords gets broken in half. Doesn't matter what uh, weapons you have around. Just grab something, throw it. He uses those stinky nuts in his fight against Feng Wu. Just says, like, cow trips. <laughs> yeah, put my stinky nuts in your face. There we go. 
Hey, Fung Wu, what you heard about D? D who? D's nuts, bitch! Goddamn. <laughs> Starts choking on D's nuts. <laughs> oh, yeah. But yeah, my opinion for starting with Kotaro and Aiden Drummond is, yeah, he's going to struggle like any child actor is. Um, in fact, I think... His is my second least favorite performance because he actually has an excuse of being a child actor. You're actually able to give him a little bit of leeway because child actors notoriously are not going to be as skilled as their adult brethren. They're, it's very hit or miss. And so I'm able to give it a little bit more leeway. But um, you could definitely tell that they wanted a child to play a child role. And so that's the direction that they went. And for better or worse, that's what they turned up with. But uh, yeah, Michael Adam Thwaite as as no name, he basically carries the whole dub by himself because his banter between him and Kotaro is like 75% of the movie. It's basically just like a buddy movie move from one way to another. It's just banter between the two of them. And I think he just has this smoothness to his voice. He's laid back when he needs to be, but also when he needs to sort of dial things up when Kotaro's in danger. I think he pulls it off really well. And I think at its core, uh, he plays the stranger and he's basically the heart of the movie. So I think he did a really good job. I would say he's not the only strong part of this dub, but he is the strongest part of the show here. So anyways, uh, going into, are we ready to go into final thoughts? I think so. So as a whole of this movie, of this dub in general, what is your opinion of 2007 Sword of the Stranger? I think that this is Bones at their strongest, like animation-wise. Like, if you want to see Bones at their peak in a movie-quality setting, uh, you either go with this or, like, the Bebop movie for a cell-made example. And this dub is doing fine work. It's not required viewing, but it's not to the detriment of uh, the show here. Like, we are getting the English across and this mix of that second language in there. Like, I'm inclined to uh, go to this dub because I have that patriarch edge and a love and adoration for all things Scott McNeil. I was really glad that day to pick this up for uh, $5 that one fateful day. Yeah, I I watched this back when it was brand new on the Bondi release. I, I actually rented it first because back then we had video rental stores. Gasp! There is technically one in Toronto on uh, Bay Street where I've gotten some Satoshi Kon films from, but they are very rare these days. Yeah, we have one downtown, and uh, I've donated a lot of my own personal collection to them. Nice. But yeah, no, I remember watching this and thinking it was very pretty, thinking the music was great, thinking the animation was phenomenal, did not have a single idea what the story was about. So I'm glad that now, 14 years later... I'm able to go back and watch it again and actually take some notes as to what was going on. But I would say that the dub is serviceable. It's not going to ruin your ears or anything. It's not perfect, but uh, you could do worse watching it either in the dub or the sub. Just watch it. It's great. You'll love it. And it has arguably the greatest sword fight in any anime film ever. And I'm not going to be arguing about that. They don't make them like this anymore. No. If you would have this scene nowadays, it would be a lot more flashy and you would have a lot more uh, impact frames. Yeah, and, and a lot of CGI forced in there. And a lot more cubes from uh, Pong. Yeah, this just this was bones at their peak, I have to say. It's kind of hard believing that this movie is already 14 years old. So anyway, if you would like to watch Sword of the Stranger, this is actually one of the few films that is streaming on Funimation.com. So you can watch it there, or you could buy it on Blu-ray or DVD. If you'd like to follow anything that we're doing, Jackson, where, they, where can they follow your exploits? Oh, I do have a Twitter account, uh, Nine Claw Tiger. I believe it's customary to talk about our unfinished projects uh, in this slot, where I do technically have a YouTube channel that I haven't touched in four years that is linked on that uh, Twitter page. Right now, it is me retweeting a lot of excellent people a lot of Sakaga nerds that can tell you a lot more about this movie. Shiran J. Zhao, who can tell you a lot more about Chinese history, if this movie piques your fancy. A lot of VTuber fan art. I still don't get the whole VTuber thing. Maybe I'm just old. 
there is a boomer comic with your name on it. Yeah, pretty much. It is a uh, perfect image of just man trying to connect it with his son with old anime DVDs and the no good to teens on about VTubers. They're the new thing now. I'm only 38. Give me a slack. Hollow life. Uh, all right. Uh, you, if you want to follow me, I'm at Spaceman Hardy at Twitter. Basically, these days, I just retweet a bunch of Final Fantasy art. I'll have an occasional rant. I'm kind of ranted out lately. You know, it's kind of under the under the grim realization that Aniplex has won and that I haven't been able to do much or anything. So, but I'm not always mopey. So come follow me at Twitter. You have a Final Fantasy remake to go play. Oh, I I can't play it because I don't have a PS5. Oh no. No, I have the to settle for. Vi- Yes, and there is... I've sent him off on a new rant. There is no reason that they can't put the Yuffie DLC on the PS4. I will die on this hill. That is my new rant. Thank you. <laughs> Bring me my ninja Disney princess, damn it. Yuffie is totally a Disney princess. She was in Kingdom Hearts, so it's canon. Uh, anyways, if you would like to follow us at Dub Talk, we have a Twitch. You are obviously watching us on YouTube. Uh, we have our podcast accounts. What are they? Podbean, Spotify, and... Wherever fine podcasts are sold. Also, if you would like to follow us on Patreon to help contribute to what we do, you can do so. Uh, we have to read off our patrons. Uh, we have our $5 tier, which is Megan's Mom and Dad, Michelle Travis, Miraculous Corzone, you... Me? You! What did I do? You can't... You're a, you're a patron. I admit to nothing. Nico Robin, but with Yowie hands, which is an image that, uh, yeah. We have Sue Tweet, Victor Mayberota, and for our $10 tier, we have Carly Lysakow, Crimson Echidna, Jacob Wilson, J2, a.k.a. Jared, Julia W., Marissa Linty, and Otaku Anthony. And with that, I think we're just about done, Jackson. Uh, any final words to say? No, let's uh, ride off into the sunset while that main theme plays. All right, and I promise I'll get out of your house and we can plug up that big hole. It's cold. So from all of us at Dub Talk, Otaku on, my friends. Goodbye, everyone. Keep it manly. <laughs>